Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to episode 15 of This Is Our Effing Podcast, a Red Sox show, with your co hosts, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. Thanks again for joining us. We've gotten great response over the last couple of weeks and a few special guests that were able to join us. We promise more guests. Uh, in the coming weeks, but this week it is just the two of us, and there certainly is plenty to talk about, and not much of it is good where it comes to the 2021 Boston Red Sox. It has been, um, I don't know if I would go so far as to use the word disastrous in relation to the most recent road trip, Steve, but it certainly was not good. Two of eight, uh, two and eight in a 10-game road trip through Tampa Bay, Detroit, and Toronto, what had been a game-and-a-half lead in the American League East is now a four-game deficit, and the Red Sox are coming home from Toronto and starting a big homestand with their tails between their legs. Yeah, the sky is falling. Come on. I mean, <laughs> since the All-Star you know how it is in Boston. <laughs> exactly. You know, it, hey, it, it's 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 looking pretty bleak right now in so many areas of the game. I think that's probably the, the thing that worries me the most. It's not one thing. It's a lot of things right now. You know, you can point to the rotation, you can point to the bullpen, you can point to lack of offense. But, you know, really the thing that that scared me the most was on that road trip. They were supposed to get a nice little reprieve going to Detroit to play against the Tigers and beat up on them a little bit before having a, another tough series in Toronto. Uh, and it didn't work out that way at all, man. And then they just really came home with their tail between their legs. Yeah, there were no uh, bright spots in terms of any of the series. They went to Tampa Bay, head-to-head matchup. This was going to be an opportunity to, you know, maybe take the series and add on to that game-and-a-half lead. Instead, they got swept by the Rays. And then, as you noted, even though the Tigers have played better uh, since the 1st of July and they're not the laughing stock they've been the last few years, they're still a team with a losing record and somebody that even on the road you should expect to take two out of three from. Instead, they dropped two out of three. And just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, three out of four losses in Toronto and two by the most heinous fashion imaginable one a walk-off home run in the bottom of the seventh inning as part of a doubleheader so that was a walk-off even though it was the seventh inning uh marcus Simeon home run off matt barnes they come back to win the nightcap there of course it takes extra innings to get the one win that they did get in rogers center and then on sunday as the road trip wraps up uh they are four outs away from at least getting a split, going home with two wins in a row. And what happens? Another huge home run. This one also off Matt Barnes by his former UConn teammate, George Springer. What was a 7-2 lead at one point and then an 8-6 lead as late as the eighth inning turned into a 9-8 loss. And it's really hard to feel pretty positive about where things are going. Uh, As you said, um, And this often happens, I guess, when teams struggle, Uh, you know, when they pitch well, they don't hit. When they hit, they don't pitch well. And sometimes they don't do either. And just in case that's not enough, 
we had just one of the worst base running exhibitions you'll ever see in Major League Baseball on Saturday night. We'll get to that a little bit later. But let's break down a little bit, Steve, uh, you know, portion by portion of what's gone wrong. And let's start where I think most of the blame uh, can be uh, fixed over the last couple of weeks, and that's the rotation. Uh, they are simply not getting quality starts. You know, throughout the first half of the year, you didn't have uh, real standout numbers by any of the starters, except maybe Nathan Evolvi. A lot of them had high threes and low four ZRAs. But what you did get was five innings on 80% of the games so that you were at least in the game. And with that lineup, you expect to, if your starter's good enough to give you five, that means you're keeping it to, you know, the other team to maybe two, three, at most four runs through the first five or six innings. And you can win those games with that kind of offense. When you're not having those guys keep you in games, well, we've seen the last week and a half what happens. Yeah, I think that's the big difference. Uh, you, when you look at Sunday's game, if you score eight runs, you got to win. I mean, this is a team, especially in the first half of the season, as you mentioned, they were scoring a ton of runs. So you're getting five innings out of your starters, even though they might not be throwing a quality start at you. You're able to get the wins because of the offensive production. Right now, that offense is sputtering a little bit. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of why I mentioned Sunday again, you get eight runs. You, you know, you got to win a game like that, especially when you're out in front the way they were. Yeah, j so, just to amplify that, Steve, sorry to interject, but the, the, the Sunday loss was the first game they've lost all year when they've scored more than six runs. So it, you're absolutely correct. They had been able to make up for, you know, any mistakes the pitching staff had made, uh, you know, to a reasonable extent. If you're scoring six, seven, eight runs, those games you have to put in your back pocket. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we talked to Dave Bush about it and he said, we're not sure what to expect. And we asked him the question, do you, do you, do you look at it as a blessing or a little bit of a, a, a question mark, knowing that you've given the ball to your same five starters virtually every fifth day to run out there with the exception of Tanner Houck, who's made the other starts uh, are these guys going to get gassed in the second half or are they continuing to build strength and confidence and, and uh, they go out there and keep doing the job that they've been doing. And I think right now we're starting to see what I would think is, is a little bit of fatigue. I think that guys are, are, are struggling now uh, taking that ball every fifth day. And, you know, they've talked about, you know, interjecting a six starter and they have done that at times as well. And, you know, going to a six man rotation to give those guys a little bit of a blow, but it's very unusual to see a starting staff uh, without injury and have them make all their starts and, and having last season virtually off with just the 60 game schedule. You're not sure how these guys are going to react to the extra stress. Yeah. I think you made a great point about what the five starters had been able to do up until this point. It's great that they've taken the ball every five or six days. It's great that they all have made more than 20 starts. It's great that they've only needed a handful of spot starts from Tanner Houck to fill in. But the flip side to that coin is, well, are you going to pay for that down the road or maybe even now? Have these guys hit a wall? Because, yeah, they've, they've posted, as Alex Cora likes to say, and answered the bell and whatever cliche you want. 
But at some point, does that catch up to them? And I wonder if we're not starting to see the beginning or, or maybe we're a couple of weeks into that now and the consequences are being suffered. Yeah, I mean, almost every pitcher goes through a dead arm period at some point in the season. But generally, to me, I always kind of felt like it came a little bit later, uh, you know, a couple weeks later than what we're talking about right now. And you talk about the dog days of summer. We're certainly getting towards that. Um, you know, I, I had a different opinion of what the dog days of summer were. I, I always thought that, you know, the most important part of the schedule is about September 10th to the 25th. That's when I think teams, you know, become pretenders and fade away. And the teams that are that are going to be good and they've had a good record the entire season decide that they're going to stay at the top of the division. You see a lot of mixing and matching and a lot of changing of places in your division during that period of time. But clearly past the point where most people would say that's not really the dog days of summer. But to me, that's that's really where teams kind of make their move. And, and uh, you see a lot of changes in the standings during that period of time. But, you know, there's no question that if, if they are going through a dead arm period, they've got to get past that and get stronger again to go through the rest of the year. Well, we've already seen one change that's coming to the rotation, and that was announced over the weekend while the Red Sox were in Toronto. And Alex Cora said that Martin Perez, who had gone through a really rough patch of about five starts with an ERA, I think over seven, if not eight, where he just wasn't giving them any length or keeping them in games. He's been moved to the bullpen, at least for now. It's a role that he's filled before in Texas, so he's not unfamiliar with it. And it comes at a time when Darwin's and Hernandez, one of the three lefties they had out in that bullpen, is uh, on the IL with a oblique issue, and we know that those can last a while. So he does give them a matchup lefty that they can use to the degree that you can still match up with the three batter rule in, in major league baseball. But uh, so Perez has been shifted, um, but you wonder, I mean, teams are always moving failed starters into the bullpen because of performance and hoping that a switch is going to get flipped. And all of a sudden the pitcher is going to figure things out just because he's not taking the ball every five days that's not always an assumption that you could make. It's, it's almost never an assumption you should make. I mean, <laughs> if the guy's struggling already in a role that he's familiar with, what makes you think he's going to be better in a role that he's less familiar with? As you mentioned, he's done it before, but he doesn't want to do that. Martin Perez looks at himself as, as a starter every morning when he wakes up. It's going to be a different situation for him coming out of there. And the problem that he's having right now is basically location. I mean, and if he he's always has to be a finesse type of location pitcher, if he's not hitting his spots, he's going to get banged around pretty good. And that's what's been happening to him. And I, you know, do you see him finding his rhythm out in the pen coming in for a one or two inning stint? Especially when, when are you going to use him? Are you going to use him in a situation where, uh, you definitely need to hold the lead or does he come in in a, in a blowout game or in a game where you're either ahead by four or five runs or down by four or five, just to make sure you can acclimate. Yeah. I, I don't think he's going to be a guy you're going to see in high leverage situations. To me, he'll, yeah, me he'll, he'll eat some innings uh, in games in which you're falling behind, or maybe you're up big, but it's not somebody, again, it's common sense that we apply here. If you don't trust them to take the ball every five days, are you really going to trust them with a one or two run lead in the seventh inning? The answer is, I don't think so. 
Yeah, so you lose a guy like Hernandez who is in that situation with the oblique. He's a guy who can come in and handle that. And you're moving a guy from the starting rotation into the pen that you're not going to be happy with in either of those type of roles. So you it really, you know, you're shuffling the deck, but you're really losing a couple guys. One bright spot has been the continued uh, good performance of Tanner Houck, who though he had a short start back on Saturday in one of in the nightcap of the better that they split with the Blue Jays. He only gave them three and two thirds, but I think he was kind of on a little bit of a shorter leash because of the shorter game. Uh, the fact that it had been a couple of weeks since he had started, he had thrown uh, a simulated game in Detroit in between, but still very effective on a night when, as he said, he didn't necessarily have his best stuff, wasn't happy with the slider, which of course can be a wipeout pitch for him. And, uh, and to go with his 95-plus fastball is really one of the two key pitches that, that he leans on. Look, if a bad start is going to be one run in three and two-thirds innings, admittedly not the length you're looking for, but Hauk is one of those guys that when they plug him in, he always seems to keep the team in the game. And he's shown me a lot. I'll tell you, even last year, you know, wasn't really sure if he was ready to be there, but they had a need. They brought him up and he dazzled. And, you know, and then this year they kind of held on to him. You know, he had the injury issues. He had to stay in AAA for a while. And now he's been an unsure starter, right? Do I get the ball every fifth day or I'm a spot guy? Do I have to come out of the pen? You know, I'm kind of the old school guy where I used to be the, the kind of guy that would say, you know what, if I'm the manager of the team, you're the pitcher for me. When I give you the ball, go pitch. You don't need to know what your role is. You don't need to know this, you know, just when I give you the ball, go pitch. But I'm, you know, in my older age, I'm, I'm starting to realize that there's a little bit more to it than that for the pitchers to understand when they they're going to get a chance to, to be in the game, to prepare themselves for the hitters that they may face. And if you're not a starter that gets the ball every fifth day where you know exactly what your routine is going to be going back and forth can be pretty difficult. Just uh, not so much mentally really, but the physical challenge that it takes to be ready to pitch when you're supposed to pitch. So I'm softening my mood on, on that. And he's handled it all brilliantly and he's a young kid. And so to me, I I see really good things for him in the future and, and certainly more down the line this season. Let's talk a little bit about the lineup, which has not been the same lineup. And I, I'm talking about in terms of production that we saw for the first three and a half months for, uh, for all the way up to the end of July. The Red Sox were among the top three, four, five teams in virtually every important offensive category, be it OPS, slugging, extra base hits, doubles, run scored, batting average. Uh, they, they were doing it all and were regularly scoring five, six, seven runs a night. Uh, that has come to a halt. Um, I, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for it, not the least of which it seems as if until Sunday, uh, Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, and, and J.D. Martinez, the guys that have carried them for so much of the season, all seem to go into a funk at the same point. Different reasons, I think, with Bogarts, it was a wrist issue, and as he has acknowledged, he got into some bad habits mechanically to help compensate for that injury, and he's got to fight through those and get back to his more normal swing and mechanics, but two hits on Sunday suggested that maybe that's coming, but there was a 15-game stretch, Steve, before Sunday where the Red Sox did not have a single game 
where they scored more than five runs. That was almost routine through the first 90 or so games. Yeah, and, and the, the rest of the lineup, you know, definitely has to kind of pick up the extra weight because if Devers, Martinez, and Bogarts aren't hitting, you know, you're, you're going to be in trouble there because the rest of that lineup, you know, are, are supporting cast to those guys. I mean, every lineup has their major players, and that's certainly the major guys in the Red Sox lineup. So when they're not going well, you can't expect, um, you know, double digits in runs. You can't expect them to score seven or eight. Uh, when those guys aren't going well. Uh, unfortunately for other teams, those guys usually really do go well and they don't stay in slumps for very long. So I wouldn't anticipate that lasting very long. And I, I think you'll see all three of those guys come back. Obviously, uh, Martinez had a big day on Sunday with his four hits. And uh, you mentioned Bogey had a couple. Um, you know, Devers, Devers is just an explosion waiting to happen at the plate. So, you know, I he's one of those guys that I can't take my eyes off when he comes to the plate. So I don't think it's going to be long before he gets it going as well. Yeah. If we're breaking down aspects of the team and asking, what are you most worried about over the final seven weeks of the season? I think most people are pretty confident that this lineup is going to hit and score runs. There's too many guys who've done it, who've done it all season. Um, uh, you know, Renfro has run hot and cold. Kike Hernandez has come on in the last few weeks. I mean, th there's a lot of weapons there, and it's too good to have that lineup stay down forever. It just happened that it came at a particularly bad time, given the opponents and given the fact that they weren't getting good performances from their starting pitching. Uh, the third aspect, the bullpen. And I think you can link some of the struggles that relievers have had with the inability of the starters to go deep into games on a consistent basis. It stands to reason when you're having starts like Martin Perez and it's two and a third, two and two thirds, three and a third, four innings, somebody's got to take up some of that slack. And even if it's the low leverage guys, guys like uh, Jaxel Rios and, and some others that you wouldn't necessarily trust in a, in a close game late, uh, just the fact that those guys are being asked to come into games earlier, I think kind of collectively takes a toll on the bullpen. And maybe we saw that a little bit on that road trip. Yeah, it's a double whammy, isn't it? As soon as you know your starter's having a bad start and he's not going to go, you know, three or four innings, you know it's going to bring the bullpen into play even earlier, which means that over the next couple of days, you're going to have to really mix and match with your bullpen. You're going to have to bring some guys into situations that you don't want to. Um, I think we've all learned that most bullpens uh, are, are really split into two categories. You know, the guys you want into a game when you need to win it and the guys that you're going to have into a game when it's a blowout one way or the other. And you don't, <laughs> and you can only rely on those guys that you definitely want in those close games so many nights before they get gassed too. So they, you know, you can't just keep running them out there every night because it's the formula that you like to use to win. I mean, we've seen. Yeah, and, and let's identify those high leverage guys uh, in the Red Sox case as Matt Barnes, obviously as the closer, Adam Ottavino, who's been the primary eight inning guy, uh, Josh Taylor, uh, who has been sort of the seventh inning guy, and then Iracazo Saramora, those are the four they've leaned the most on. And 
Sawamura on Sunday left with some elbow tightness. That always gets her attention and not in a good way. Uh, we've seen Ottavino have his ERA shoot up about uh, one and a quarter runs in the last three weeks. Barnes gave up two game-winning homers in the span of 24 hours. And Taylor has not been as sharp as usual. Those are the four guys you worry about. If, if Axel Rios and, and Hansel Robles and some of the other guys that they use when they're either up big or down big are going, uh, you know, off the rails, you can work around that. But when your high leverage guys are struggling, that's going to cost you games. Yeah, when you look at the, you know, Sarah Murrow, when he comes out of the game, walking a couple guys, giving up runs, Ottavino, you know, trying to pick guys off and <laughs> giving up runs, Barnsey giving up a, a homer to his buddy. Uh, that couldn't have felt really good. What a, what a great swing he put on that pitch. You don't generally see, you know, too many right-handed hitters uh, be great on down and in fastballs, but man, he jumped all over that thing. And, uh, you know, I don't worry too much about Barnes because he has been so good. Um, you know, you, you can, you know, every time you run out there, if you're facing a guy with a bat in his hands, he could be dangerous. And no matter how good you are and, and how, how well you've been throwing the ball, you know, you can throw a pitch up there that gets whacked around a little bit. And unfortunately for Barnes, it was with a couple guys on base, a three-run homer at the wrong time. Yeah, it couldn't have come at a worse time. As I said, they were four outs away from – uh, winning their second in a row, getting out of Toronto, uh, you know, with a two and two mark, not great, but not terrible. And maybe you feel like you have a little momentum going home to face Tampa Bay. And let's talk a little bit about that schedule, Steve. They are through now with what was their longest road trip of the year. It was a lousy one, two and eight over 10 games in three different series. But the schedule starts to bend toward them in their favor now for the next few weeks. They go home for six in a row, and in fact, 12 of the next 15 are going to be at Fenway, where they have played better ball, although they have been, until recently, one of the better road teams in the game. Uh, but this three-game series coming up with Tampa Bay uh, is huge, uh, in part because it's one of three series left that the Red Sox have. Now that they are four games back in the East, that's the biggest deficit they have faced this season. But the positive there, I guess, is that you still have three series, 10 games against the Rays. Two of those three series are at Fenway. So you have an opportunity to close the gap starting on Tuesday. Um, let's talk a little bit about how the Red Sox match up with the Rays as that series comes to Fenway. Yeah, I mean, so far, not so great. I mean, I mean, we know it year in and year out. The Rays are a team to that you have to contend with now. I mean, they've woken up. They've finally decided that they're not going to be a doormat team anymore. They have uh, always been able to produce a tremendous amount of talent with very uh, little resources in order to do it. But, you know, they just, they just play the game. They play the game the way it's supposed to be played. To me, you look at the way they play the game. They just play good, hard-nosed baseball. You can't look up and down their lineup and say, wow, this guy really scares me but they just get it done day in and day out and they always pitch. Yeah. And, and, you know, to me, that's kind of the amazing thing that the Rays are where they are in first place in a tough division with three good teams chasing them. And they have lost glass now for the rest of the year. They traded Rich Hill a couple of weeks ago. And when you look at uh, what they're bringing into Fenway, the three guys they're going to start in this 
showdown series coming up on Tuesday are the rookie they got from San Diego and the Snell deal, uh, Patino, along with Fleming and Yarbrough. That's not exactly, uh, you know, uh, Maddox and, and Glavin and, uh, uh, and Smoltz. Smoltz riding into Fenway. And yet here the Rays are. And, and it, it's moments like this where you ask, how do they do it? Because while Patino is a very talented young kid and a promising young arm and doesn't have a lot of major league experience, but will probably grow into a pretty good starter. He's not there yet. The other two guys are, are just flinging the ball up there, not particularly hard. Uh, and it makes you wonder, are they doing it with mirrors here? Yeah, and you know, to take it a step further, you kind of mentioned Snell and of course Charlie Morton. They got rid of half of their their team in the offseason and through trades and through guys leaving through free agency. So their their ability to keep it going has always been amazing. You know, we've noted that for years now. But yeah, Yarborough is a guy that you know just kind of flings it up there. And uh, you you just you're you're not sure why this team tends to give everybody trouble, but what it comes down to is that there are a bunch of talented guys that, you know, not too many people know that much about, and they just keep plugging away at it. But, you know, the Red Sox have to make something happen for them at home, because as you talked about the four game deficit now and 10 games left with the team that's in front of you, it's the easiest way to catch up is to beat the team that's in front of you. We all know that. And, but they can't have a series like they had down uh, in Tampa Bay at Fenway this week. They got to be able to, bounce back and take a few of those games, creep up on the division. You know, there's, there's no must-win games right now quite yet, but you certainly have to go out there and, and, and start creeping back up in standings. Yeah, you can't lose any more ground, and that's the hard thing, is that even if you take two out of three, because I think we realize that a sweep is pretty difficult against a good team, even though Tampa did sweep the Red Sox uh, a weekend ago in St. Petersburg, I think most fans would be happy if the Red Sox you know, were to take two of three in the series, and yet that only shaves a game off the lead and gets you to within three. Now, there'll be 46 games left when you're three games out. That is far from insurmountable. But it just goes to show you that when you get four games out, you know, you're not breathing down their neck anymore. They've got a little bit of breathing room, and, you know, the the onus is on the Red Sox uh, to, to make their move and, and get a little bit closer here in this series. Now, uh, one of the positive things, there have not been many, as we've discussed this ap- uh, in this episode, um, it is the pending return of Chris Sale, who finished up his final rehab assignment over the weekend on the road in Moosick, Pennsylvania, which I hear is beautiful this time of year. Chris Sale took the team bus with the Worcester Red Sox, uh, paid for an extra night so that they could get in and get a good night's sleep, paid for the extra day of using the bus, splurged on some nice dinners for all the guys at AAA. But now it is time for him to step back and, uh, and rejoin the Red Sox. And the Red Sox hope give that rotation a boost when it needs it most. The question, I guess, is after it will be exactly two years and one day that Chris Sale made his last start when he starts on Saturday against Baltimore. It'll be two years and a day since he last faced major league hitters in a regular season game. What, after two years and Tommy John, can we expect? 
I expect uh, a pretty darn good Chris Sale. I mean, Chris Sale just won't let himself be anything other than the competitive master of pitching on the mound. Now, will his stuff match up with the attitude that he takes to the mound? You know, I, maybe not his first couple times out, although I, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes out and, and has a, an excellent outing his first time. I mean, he can probably throw upwards of, of 100 pitches uh you know yeah, he, he threw 89 to, in his last rehab start so yeah I mean, he tends to throw a lot of pitches so you know striking guys out takes takes a lot of pitches so i wouldn't be surprised if he throws 100 pitches and only goes five innings but uh th those could be a pretty productive five innings look you know since the tommy john was invented shoot i played against tommy john They've perfected it now. You know, you look at a guy like Nate Evaldi, who's had a couple of them. Yep. He still throws 100 miles an hour. Um, these guys, the way they make them work and they, the way they make them rehab their elbows and their arm and their body in general after that surgery, these guys literally can come back better. They're like Steve Austin, you know, the $6 million <laughs> man. They can come back better and stronger the way than, than who they were before. And... You know, he's had two years. You know, a lot of guys, you know, come back from a Tommy John in less than a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, um, it, it's not two years since the surgery. It's two years since he, because remember, they shut him down in August yeah, that's of, right. of 2019, thinking that the PRP uh, treatment was going to work. And it seemed to be working until about halfway through spring training. And then they realized he needed the surgery. So he's had... Uh, the surgery was on March 30th. It's his, that was his birthday, uh, his 31st birthday, I think. So he'll have had, you know, 16, 17 months of recovery, which is a little on the conservative side. It's not rushing him back out there. Um, to me, I don't worry about the velocity. He's already hitting 95, 96, 97. That's good enough, certainly, to win at the big league level with his stuff. We've seen that wipeout slider at times. The thing that I would be concerned about is the command, not control. I don't think he's going to walk the ballpark, but I wonder if he's going to be able to precisely locate pitches within the strike zone where he wants right off the bat. Yeah, because I think that's an interesting point. I mean, uh, control and command are two totally different things. Right. You know, a lot of guys have control. They can throw the ball over the plate. Unfortunately, they <laughs> they get too much of the plate and it gets whack. You know, commanding the ball, getting it where you want, inside, outside, up and down, throw to the quadrants of the plate that, that you want to work with. And we all know he loves down and into right-handers. And, and that's got to be able to get there because – when you're talking about a big sweeping slider from a left-hander, if it doesn't get to your spot, it catches a lot of the plate as it comes across. And, you know, it, it has to be going on a downward motion and look like his fastball. And, you know, he's been a master of that his entire career. Uh, certainly he can get away with throwing his fastball up in the zone and get guys to chase. So, you know, th those are primarily the pitches that he uses. And, you know, he's got to be able to uh, get that pinpoint control back because, you know, even a guy like you will get hit if, if, he's just, if he's just controlling his pitches, not commanding them. It's going to be a fascinating week with the Rays in for a big series, head-to-head -head with the Red Sox, followed two days later by the triumphant return of Chris Sale. That'll be against the Baltimore Orioles. It's a six-game homestand. 
Um, and there will be no shortage of things to talk about when we assemble for episode 16 next week. Um, let's see if it goes any better than the previous week did for the Red Sox. Uh, in the meantime, Steve, great to talk to you and look forward to looking back on what will be a pretty momentous week when we talk next week. All right. I can't wait. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.